Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of The Search. So we are going to be continuing on our uh, journey uh, through the lung and lung pathologies. And the ultimate goal here is to get you ready to take on ICU roles and develop a comfort with uh, taking care of ICU patients with COVID-19. Uh, as you all have probably heard, we're all experiencing this. We're all in the same boat uh, all around the world. We're feeling a little bit overwhelmed and a little bit tense. Um, and you know, one of the things that I figured would help everybody out is if I sort of started to talk about certain key concepts that, that we would need uh, to manage these patients safely. Uh, we started, we sort of, the idea evolved slowly. So we started off with a little bit of talk about personal protective equipment when it wasn't very well recognized. We were still sort of debating what we needed and what we didn't. Uh, moved on to talking about how to operate on these patients because um, I felt that that was something that could potentially be a problem, things like tracheostomies. Then we talked about hemodynamics and the latest guidelines. And now we're talking about the tools that we need to be comfortable activating these guidelines. Uh, we sort of talked about pressures initially. Obviously, we need to know that stuff. Uh, last week, we were talking about part one of this talk, which was a white belt to white belt transition in understanding lung physiology, lung at a cellular level, lung at a chemical level, and lung at a mechanics level. And then identifying that there are, although there are mixed pathologies, and this is completely incorrect from a physiological or a spirology standpoint, from a practical what to do with the ventilator standpoint, it literally is it. You would uh, like to divide the components of your respiratory problem or failure into two different concepts. The first concept is an oxygenation problem. The second concept is a hypercapnic ventilation problem. The first concept is the uh, inability of the lung to adequately push oxygen into a red blood cell. It sounds like I'm, I'm sort of lost here. I'm not. It's, it's very hard for me to think how to explain the necessity for PEEP and FiO2 to be balanced uh, without going through this paradigm in a very slow way. PEEP is your pressure at the end of exhalation. It's the pressure at which you reach the residual volume from last week or last session. It's the pressure at which you reach your residual volume. If you are below your PEEP, or if your PEEP is too low, then your functional residual capacity goes down, which means that your compliance goes down to an extent or your measured compliance goes down. Your actual compliance has nothing to do with it. Your actual compliance is a constant of lung factors, but it goes down. And the reason why I say this is because when you switch, when you flip the script, when you're not taking a deep breath in, and when it's not negative pressure, when you're shoving the air into the mouth, your compliance is directly proportional to the pressure that's going through the mouth. And that pressure denotes an alveolar oxygenation pressure, which creates a pressure gradient, which affects the rate of oxygenation. And so without the PEEP, you will have lung collapse, and you will have those problems occurring. With the PEEP, you will be fine. 
With excessive PEEP, you will develop, one, compression of the capillaries, reducing the efficiency of the lung overall. It will affect CO2 and O2 to an extent. Number two, bowel trauma. Number three, pneumothoraces, which I have a feeling we're going to see with this disease state. And number four, decreased venous return as the autopeep sets in. And if you ever had a patient with suspected autopeep, it's the easiest thing to treat. You take off the ventilator, you press down on the chest and reconnect the ventilator. The second component that augments and buttresses and supports oxygenation is FiO2. FiO2 is the concentration of oxygen that goes with the air that's being shoved in. The problem with that is that it produces uh, free radicals and sort of causes a um, corrosive effect on the lining of the alveoli, which leads to inflammation and thickens the distance from the alveolar epithelium to the subepithelial layer to the interstitial fluid space, etc., etc. So those are the two things that you have to play around with, and those are the two things that you can play around with, okay? Ventilation or CO2 problems can be augmented by increasing your minute ventilation, which is your tidal volume times the respiratory rate, or by increasing your PEEP in addition to the, the inspiratory pressure, which is the driving pressure, which you know commonly is probably going to be pressure support plus PEEP in most people's heads. I've given up on trying to not make it that. So... For you guys, if you're thinking of it as pressure support plus PEEP, given the fact that this is a worldwide pandemic and we're not talking person to person and I can't draw 15 graphs to explain it to you and explain the differences between the two, it's okay to think of them as pressure support plus PEEP. I'm okay with it in most ventilators, okay? But uh, driving pressure or inspired pressure plus PEEP is how you increase tidal volume. Now, there are certain ventilation settings and modes that will allow you to set a driving pressure. And then there are certain versions that will allow you to set a tidal volume. And then there are certain versions of these settings that will allow you to set an FiO2 and a PEEP and driving pressure, but not a rate. And there are certain versions that will allow you to set a minute ventilation or just a tidal volume and a rate. And we're going to go through these in a second in two slides that I can't take credit for writing because they're absolutely brilliant. I never do anything that's brilliant. If you were to look for a one-slide summary of what you need to put on a ventilator in terms of settings, because this confuses people more than trying to set up their iPhone for the first time, you want a tidal volume of 6 to 8 ml per kg. You want a rate of 10 to 15 ml that you titrate based on the next blood gas that you take. You want a total inspiratory trim that's about one second. Uh, FiO2 can range between 21%, which is room air, to 100%. You should target about 40% when you first get your party started. Your PEEP should never be above 20, but uh, should be somewhere between 6 and 8. I don't like a PEEP of 0, but I put that down anyway because it's theoretically possible. Your IE ratio should be 1 to 1. In my setting, dealing with these patients, I would probably go one to two. Your inspiratory flow rate should be 40 to 60 liters per minute uh, for your anesthesia guys. 
and your breath trigger should be minus 2 centimeters of H2O or a flow of 5 liters per minute unless unless you have the situation where your patient has very poor respiratory efforts. Your alarms should be based on a leak, peak airway pressure, flow rate, FiO2 alarm, uh, wet circuits, and um, saturation, obviously. Okay. When you look at the modes of mechanical ventilation, okay, there are assisted, there are controlled, and there are supported. Okay. The key difference between them are that controlled breaths will push you up while you're doing the push-up, whether you want to do it or not. So whether you're attempting to do the pull-up or you're not, sorry, I meant to say pull-up, it will push on you. It'll grab your legs and shove you up there. I'm like my personal trainer. Richard, if you're listening to this, it's weird, man. So it will literally like lift you as you're doing the pull-up and you're doing no effort at this point. Okay, that's called a controlled breath. An assisted breath is you trying to do the pull-up, getting somewhere there, even just an effort on your scapulae, just like tensing of your face is enough, and then the ventilator takes over and pushes you up there. A supported breath is when all it is is giving you a height to jump onto the pull-up bar, and you're doing your own pull-up, and you're doing most of the work. Your choice depends on the level of sedation and the level of breathing. A controlled breath, the ventilator does all the work and you're not allowed to breathe otherwise. An assisted breath, the ventilator takes over, but you have to decide when you're going to take a breath. A supported breath, the ventilator gets you back to your starting point. But you're going to go ahead and do the breath on your own, okay? Secretly, there are only two modes. Assist control, in which if you take a breath on your own, I'm going to help you out. And if you don't take enough breaths within a given cycle, then I'm going to go ahead and give you a breath, right? And a supported breath, in which you're allowed to breathe on your own, and it's just helping you out. There are different types of assist control modes and supportive modes. The only supportive mode in most major ventilators is pressure support. Pressure support gives a preset pressure and a preset FiO2 but does not give you a preset volume and does not augment that pressure. It's this preset pressure that will never change. Okay? Pressure support with an extra breath based on a rate. So as an example, if I set the rate to 12, you get 12 breaths per minute, no matter what, of a preset volume or a preset pressure or a preset of both, pressure and the volume, then you'll get those breaths, all 12 breaths, of that preset volume, preset rate, etc., in addition to whatever breaths that you take at pressure support. Pressure-regulated volume control gives you a preset pressure and a preset volume. That preset pressure is based on the driving pressure. You can control minute ventilation using pressure-regulated volume control. And you can control PEEP. And you can control FiO2. And whenever the patient takes a breath on their own, they're pushed towards that breath. They give an assisted breath. And it's subtracted from the total. 
The rest of these types, you don't really necessarily need to know for COVID patients. But there are certain types of breaths in which you only give a preset pressure and you don't care about the volume. And that allows the patient to wean themselves on their own effectively. And it's safe for certain patients. You know, I'm talking like your COPDers that just want to do their own thing, certain types of cardiac patients, certain types of lung contusion patients, or volume-assisted breath in which your CO2 is the real problem, man, and you're just trying to get through the day, okay? But pressure-regulated volume control, I would contend, is the right way to go, and I'll explain why in a second. In general, if I were to summarize all of these modes, volume control, pressure-regulated volume control, are for apneic patients. SIMV and pressure-regulated volume control are for spontaneously breathing patients. And pressure support, volume support, or CPAP, are good for spontaneously breathing patients. Secretly, you can't go wrong with PRVC and pressure support. Pressure support for when you want to wean them, PRVC for when you're not weaning them. Just to give you an idea of the difference between the two, because I get this a lot, SIMV is not spontaneous. SIMV allows you to be spontaneous, but will not support you more than pressure support. Assist control, or PRVC, is spontaneous. Whenever you trigger it, we've had a busy call, but whenever you trigger it, it will automatically supplement that breath. Okay, and subtract it from the total to allow for a consistent minute ventilation. So you can control your minute ventilation with assist control, and in theory at least, SIMV does not give you that control. When you are on the ventilator, once you've intubated the patient to avoid the debate of permissive hypoxemia, high altitude issues and phenotypes, because of the nature, and you should really watch the previous episode if you haven't, I know it's a little bit long-winded, but you should really watch it, because you have that issue in place, and because of the issues outlined in the previous episode, because it's a, it's basically a non-ARDS pathology, that shares a lot of similarities with ARDS on imaging and on lung mechanics. Using the ARDSNET protocol is probably the best option. And this is basically ARDSNET protocol, okay? With an increment increase, uh, uh, with an increment increase that allows for a, um, a minimal amount of barotrauma and minimal amount of oxygen toxicity. Okay, with a plateau pressure goal that you're seeing here. Okay, and a pH goal of 7.3 to 7.45, and subsequently looking to wean the patient, which we'll get through in a second. Now, the side effects of any sort of ventilation strategy are as follows. So, going for a high PEEP strategy is one thing. It causes barotrauma. Uh, we don't like the barotrauma. It'll cause like a... a compression in the capillaries, a profound uh, preload problem, uh, sort of a, a cardiorespiratory situation that could lead to a hypotension because of over-distension. It'll lead to pneumothoraces. It'll lead to a splinting type of phenomenon. It's not comfortable for the patient. There's a whole bunch of reasons why that's bad, right? It could actually lead to more inflammation. But bad oxygenation is slightly harder for people to understand. And, and I think that part of the reason why is because they don't understand the free radical threshold. Okay, so the free radical threshold used to be theoretical. We now have microscopic evidence that if you give too much oxygen and it displaces the nitrogen, it will lead to two problems. Atelectasis because of the fact that you have no nitrogen and all the oxygen is getting absorbed and sort of 
effervescent corrosion of the endothelium as a result as the oxygen dissociates into a gas at that level. When you're talking about PEEP damage, you're talking about bar trauma. And it literally looks like you're punching the lungs on the inside. That's what it looks like. You have perivascular cuffing, you have thickening of the, the, the inhalonization due to constant barraging of the lungs and punching them. You're literally punching them from the inside, right? And, and, and that, that's not good, man. That leads to diffusion problems, that leads you to an endless cycle requiring more and more PEEP, or a need to decrease the tidal volume. And so we have permissive uh, hypercapnia, a permissive uh, sort of saturation and lower FiO2 target. And there's also the cardiac effects of PEEP as it compresses the airway, it compresses the arteriovenous sites and leads to a preload problem. Um, I'm not going to go into great details, but this cartoon clearly shows you what it looks like when you have uh, increased pulmonary vascular resistance, you have uh, reduced venous return, and that's not good. It's bad, man. All right. Now, with COVID, there's also other logistics that you have to think about when you're caring with ventilated patients. And these logistics are looking at how you're going to contact the, the circuit using closed circuit systems to minimize the contamination, secretions, uh, super infection, how to target a uvolemic target, uh, looking at the CVP or an output, a judicious use of diuresis, and how to minimize ventilator disconnection reconnection. And obviously, you have to do all interactions with PPE, and you can't let any paper or pens into your ICU room, okay? In addition to that, I would say that with COVID-19 patients, you know, I still maintain that you should intubate them aggressively if you have a reason to. Um, the only reason not to is a shortage of ventilators, which I'm not rubbishing off, but I am saying that if you have adequate ventilators, a permissive hypoxemia without the ability to closely monitor the patient may not be wise. So we're looking at situations where we're either overwhelmed because we don't have enough ventilators, or we're overwhelmed because we don't have enough staff, or in most cases, a mixture of the two. And in those cases, having a saturation of 88% in your emergency room waiting to see how things go may not be very justifiable, right? In terms of adjuncts and rescue, quote-unquote rescue, which I don't think are rescue, I think that they're step-ups, uh, proning uh, works. There isn't a lot of data there, but the data that from the Proceva study and other studies is very good. This is an open access article. Everybody should read it. There's a great video. It's also open access. And you can clearly see CT findings that show improvement in ARDS patients at least. And some of these COVID patients do progress to superimposed pneumonia and subsequent ARDS. And by some, I mean a quantifiable number that we're seeing in the Chinese literature that may not be translating to Western minds, right? So whenever you're doing proning, just a quick review. First, you need to set up the lines of ventilator position. Then you need to secure the lines and tubes. And then you need to move the patient to the side, have your undersheet set up, and then flip the patient back over, push your undersheet on the other way, connect up your cardiac monitors to the back, and begin proning the patient. Change the position every two hours to avoid bed sore formation. Uh, High-frequency austere ventilation is associated with number one, higher mortality, number two, death, number three, not validated for COVID patients. I would say looking at the type of disease pathologies that we're seeing, it may not be very useful. It's a lung protective strategy more so, I think. It relies on a pendulous phenomenon, which I'm not going to get into today. But I would say that it's not the best option. 
and I would leave it out of the way. I'm adding the slide just because there's always one person who asks me about it. I've only dealt with one brand. You have a picture of it up there. Um, I rarely use it anymore, and I like ECMO and Prony. ECMO is the best. Uh, no questions here. It will uh, save you a lot of work with these patients. I think it might be a good idea to start using it if you have adequate staffing and adequate um, resources at a pH of around about 7.2 and an intractable CO2 problem. I think that it's mainly when you have that type of situation where it's an intractable hypoxemia CO2 situation that's offsetting metabolism, you know, persistently. In terms of liberation, your extubation criteria should be a mindset rather than a criteria, in my opinion. And the mindset should be, number one, has the problem resolved? So is the patient's chest x-ray looking better? Is the patient's CT scan, if you have it, looking better? Number two, does the physiology look better? Do the blood gases look better? Number three, decide on a screening test. So the screening test in our case will be a spontaneous breathing trial where we put the patient on a trach collar or put the patient to a T-piece and check their ability to protect their airway. And are they weaned down to the point where they can protect their airway? Are they legibly talking to you? Are they able to speak to you? Are they able to breathe? And then see whether or not once you extubate them, they do well. By doing well, I mean, can they tie themselves over with minimal effort? And do you need to use non-invasive non -invasive ventilation, such as high-flow nasal cannula? If that doesn't work, you need to reinstitute mechanical ventilation. This is the gist of things for somebody who's a non-intensivist dealing with these situations. Non-anesthetist, non non-intensivist, emergency practitioner who does not work in the ICU, or a surgeon. The fine details are that when you're in the weaning phase, you can move them onto a assisted or supported ventilator mode. So move them onto an assist control mode where they're breathing on their own more and more and check that their breathing rate on their own is higher significantly. Two, wean down their sedation, check their level of consciousness. Three, allow them to wean themselves down to a pressure support that's just about, if not even less than, like more challenging for them to breathe at. Four, go up with the amount of physiotherapy that you use with the patients incrementally. Five, do a spontaneous breathing trial. Six, extubate them. Some people believe in spontaneous breathing trials, some people don't. You're not losing anything doing that. And especially when the reintubation risks of aerosolized transfer are very high, you might want to do it, all right? Because like reintubating these patients is a bit of a job on the healthcare system if somebody gets infected, especially with shortage of PPE. If you were to ask me for numbers on event and numbers in terms of blood gas, they would be patient stable, non-invasive pressors, heart rate below 120 while awake, oriented, even if they're agitated slightly, pH of 7.35 to 7.45, PCO2 of 4.6, a respiratory rate of less than 25 breaths per minute, minute ventilation of less than 10 liters per minute, and a saturation that's above 92%, while on a pressure support mode with a PEEP of 5 and FiO2 40. Extend the PEEP to 6 if you're losing slightly narrower tube, etc. Now, what if they fail that? What if they plateaued? Then look for solvable problems in the lung. So, solvable problems in the lung or in, in, in respirology. Fluid overload. Check their CVP. Check their lung fields. You can do a trial of diuresis if they're hemodynamically stable. Decrease in level of consciousness. Uh, get rid of what's causing it, whether it's agitation, delirium, or sedation. 
Upper airway weakness, reduced respiratory effort. Get them to wake up, go aggressive with the physiotherapy. They should feel like they've been to, to the gym or they've run a marathon by the time that your physiotherapist is done with them. Increased secretions and upper airway problem. And then lastly, baseline respiratory failure. So COPD, emphysema, plateau. Maximize that. So you need to look at all these things before you've decided that they failed extubation, right? Um, this is my two cents on how to wean somebody and the overall perspective of it. Uh, next, I'll be talking about uh, ventilation at 2 a.m. when you're called at 2 a.m. for a disaster. All right. Um, and that was requested, actually. Please feel free to subscribe. Let me know what you'd like to hear. If you'd like to hear anything, let me know what I'm doing badly. I accept feedback totally and we'll start working on it. And let me know if uh, you have any other thoughts. Uh, this is Saud Al-Zaid, and thank you for listening.